Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I've got Dovi Wan, uh, founder, partner at uh, Primitive Ventures and executive director at Hardcore Fund. Welcome, Dovi. Hey, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. I kind of describe you as a kind of native investor to Web3 and kind of longtime advocate, especially through initiatives like Hardcore Fund, but also somewhat of a, a contrarian. And I mean that in a very positive way. <laughs> um, but Contrarians are uh, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. I find it really refreshing how you, you think very freely and openly on uh, places like Twitter, and it's obviously attracted you a really great following. Um, but you're you're not af- afraid to think aloud, and I, I find that really refreshing. And I think it then invites a lot of debate around some of the ideas that you've got. So th- thanks for all the thought leadership that you've been doing. So uh, you describe primitive ventures as thesis free, and in, instead you you kind of rather use that time to find and help these kind of builders of value, but. Obviously, you are kind of dedicated towards crypto necessarily rather than other technologies, but crypto in a, a kind of full stack context. You say you're market cycle agnostic and you've invested in the likes of Definity, Zcash, Cosmos, Masari, Brave, so a great list of investments there. And since your seminal post in 2019, which was Decentralized Journey to the East, you've become one of the go-to people for folk in the West to try to understand what the hell's going on in the crypto scene in, in China, which you've kind of called this this Chinese version of the American dream. And so much so now you're an advisor to Coindesk and, and luminaries like uh, Michael Arrington. So it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, um, sure. We first met at a conference in Singapore. I can't remember yeah. exactly when, but probably 2018. Um, I think that is the Binance conference, right? So that's where, uh, that's where we had the same panel together, I remember. Right, that's the first panel. And then more recently, um, we did a panel in Shanghai, actually just before uh, COVID broke out towards the end yeah, of that's 2019. Right. That's right. And we just had an interesting chat off air that you've basically been running away from COVID. Um, you left China to go to the West Coast, left the West Coast to go to Singapore, left Singapore. And now you're currently back in your hometown in uh, Guangzhou in, in, in China, right? Yeah, so it's all the way around. Yeah, so I right now back to the base one and and I feel great. And and so have seen like different people, how different governments react to COVID and like different culture and like all this like new paradigm shift of this like, power struggle globally and the geo global tension and how it actually cascading down to how individual thought about the world. And, and so, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty fun, exciting, exhorted, like journey, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely made a great Netflix documentary. So if only we kind of could have re- recorded that. <laughs> and so far, no COVID, right? So you, you managed to uh, you you managed to escape that. <laughs> 
yeah, totally COVID free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, you know, as a consequence, you know, there's this strange, not really a, a topic for this podcast, but there is this strange relationship between crypto, Twitter, and the kind of COVID thing, spotting it early. And it was really people like yourself who were kind of core to the, the, the crypto community that were kind of raising that, that, that profile of what was going on there before, before it hit the West. Um, and I think that's really illustrative of your unique position. You're almost a bridge manifest between uh, the West Coast and the wider Asian crypto scene. And I say wider because it's not just China. You've also had some really interesting insights into South Korea, but you also have a very kind of deep technical grounding in understanding these technologies. So um, what I want to really talk about today is to go into some of the similarities and differences you see between these seemingly very different ecosystems. I want to kind of revisit that post from uh, 2018 on the decentralized journey to the east and, and understand what's the same, what's changed. Obviously, uh, time moves uh, very quickly in, in our world, in, in the crypto scene, in Web3. And then also go into the kind of type of founders that you, you're drawn to. Obviously, the purpose of this podcast is to meet uh, and understand that the founders that are pioneering the space, but also the investors that are backing them. And I know you've had some really interesting thoughts around the emerging or evolving role of founders, especially of protocols. I know you've likened them more to politicians than than entrepreneurs. Um, and, and so that that's kind of something I want to go into. Yeah, so, sounds good. To kind of summarize the, the origin story, if I may, and please do kind of add to it, you left China at 20 to, to study at Carnegie Mellon to do your master's there. I believe um, it was that experience where you first encountered these kind of very strict foreign exchange capital controls in China. Uh, I think $50,000 cap. And that, of course, significantly limited, restricted your overseas expenses around tuition and rent um, and led to this appeal of borderless, permissionless uh, digital currency. You, after your master's, you went to work at eBay and you were the kind of product owner for trending at eBay. And during that, you moonlighted as a, a US rep to 36KR, which went on to become a very big media player and accelerator in China. Yeah, so just went public this year, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, congratulations. Um, I hope you still held some stock. And then 2014, you became MD at DHVC. And was that, did you found that or was that uh, you were kind of hired in? Yeah, so I was hired in. So I spent my first four years as an investor journey there. And so like that's when I made my first blockchain crypto investment like into back in the time. It's not Definity, but like the same company and same team right before Definity and that's Quantify. And like Quantify later pivoted into Streamlab and Definity is one of these uh, projects uh, under Streamlab. And, and so like that is where my history and my um, just my first step into crypto actually, just uh, first step into crypto investment. Right. And so that was also alongside a number of other investments, as I understand it, into kind of consumer, US consumer tech, Wish, Grub Market, Flexport. And you're also doing quite a few investments into AI, so Pilot AI and AutoX, which was working on level five. Autonomous autonomy. driving. 
Yep, yep. That's right. So again, I think, you know, really illustrative of the kind of technical credentials that you have to be able to make those kind of investments and that, that spectrum of investments as well. So that led you to found Primitive Ventures in 2018, um, which is dedicated to, to crypto, where you invested in Polychain, Handshake, Definity, Seller, Brave, Cosmos, Zcash, um, and a number of others. So I, I kind of want to go into, as I said, starting with this decentralized journey to these, because I think this was when I first became aware of you and um, certainly where you started to get a lot of attention because it was almost the first translation of what was going on in the Asian crypto scene. As I said, in particular, uh, China and South Korea, it serves to be very informative for people trying to understand the story of this industry because it has been very much shaped by what's been going on in, in China and, and the East. Um, so in this post, you, you talked about some themes and it'd be good to kind of uh, unpack them. So the, the first one was that you felt in Web3, if, if we can use that term, that Silicon Valley had lost its unfair advantage. And actually the biggest exchanges, miners were all in China. Um, and then of course, there was this 9-4 moment, I guess, Crypto China's 9-11, where there, there are a number of bans that, that came through. So it'd be great to understand if you could kind of talk us through that journey, the kind of key narratives that were driving what was happening in the East and what's the same and what's different now, kind of two years on. Yeah, sure. I think if we just flash back in the time, and so there's a historical reason why uh, like the biggest miners is here in China and why most of the hash rate is still right now located in mainland China. So at the very beginning, if we back in the time, like 2012, et cetera, and so like that's when we first start to see the shift from just generic CPU or like GPU mining into ASIC mining. And so a few of these uh, uh, early just, uh, Chinese crypto OG, and they are actually the first one, like among the first, like the very early group to actually invent a uh, pretty advanced uh, AC miner. So that is quite a um, inflection time when uh, many local Chinese people, uh, so previously, so they were just like flippers, traders, like speculators. And so they see the potential opportunity in mining. And especially because they are actually closer to the manufacturers of uh, ASIC maker. And so they have the early access of like the state of the art machine. So like that's when a lot of uh, local Chinese crypto player gets into mining. Uh, and I would consider during that period, like probably between 2012 to like 2014. And um, so that is also the first Bitcoin boom, just like price all the way went up to like a thousand US dollar. And that is also the same period when like, a lot of people get into mining here in China. As we all know, because the supply of Bitcoin is limited, right? And, and miner is the only supply for Bitcoin production. So that naturally make China as the, so as the biggest Bitcoin supply nation. And so I can fairly say probably pre, so pretty much that 70% of the Bitcoin is actually made in China. Uh, once you have that much of supply, 
and you have to sell it, right? Because that miner has to sell the Bitcoin to cover the electricity bill and the operational cost. And so once you have those access supply and you have to sell the Bitcoin and how you can sell Bitcoin. Between 2012 to like 2014, there's uh, OTC and we have the very earliest Bitcoin exchanges like uh, BTC China, etc. So I think after 2014, uh, 2014 to 2016, that's actually the blooming era of all these exchanges, uh, BTC China, Huobi, OK, etc. So that is like a natural evolution of the industry developed here. So like first from ASIC manufacturers, then to mining, and then exchanges and all the other trading facilities. Uh, now we fast forward to 2017. And I think like 2017, there's a little bit different because like that's the blooming of all these ICOs and all these altcoins, right? So if we look back for the entire ICO bubble, I personally think Zcash actually marked the very important milestone, uh, probably the starting point of the entire ICO bubble. Zcash went online. Uh, so like Zcash, it is a Silicon Valley uh, company and project. So Zcash went online in, I remember in late 2016. And so uh, I was almost investing Zcash from my previous fund, but my partner has some concern over this regulatory uh, like overhead because uh, Zcash is like a private coin. And, but, but like that's also when I um, came to know and become pretty close friends with Zuko and like the other Zcash team members. And uh, Zcash went online in late 2016. And the price went all the way up to almost like a thousand dollar per Zcash. And I still remember like the highest price point, one Zcash was equal to probably five or seven Bitcoin. So that is how the entire bubble started, I think. And, and then so in the early 2017, we have seen the rally of Ethereum and all the other Ethereum related like ecosystem projects like Kyber, ZeroX, uh, Brave, etc., and just like the entire ICO craze, like just went on, so just I like, went fold on. So that is how the thing like heating up in Silicon Valley and in so between 2016 to 2017. And during the same time, we have like a completely mirror uh, scenario like back in China uh, and probably also in like Korea as well. Uh, like in Korea, you entire, call it the kimchi premium, right? Uh, kimchi premium. Yeah, so like... In Korea. Right. Yeah, exactly. So let me just explain like all this uh, kimchi premium or just like Asian premium for so for a little bit. Uh, I think the whole ICO bubble is where Silicon Valley or in general, like the Western community led the ICO bubble because like, most of the leading ICO projects at the very beginning are from the East. So I don't necessarily consider them as like copycat, but like conceptually, so they consider as the local, as the local counterparty, like towards Ethereum, like back in China, we have NEO, we have Quantum. Uh, so in like Korea, like this icon and a few other local Korean hero projects, right? And, and then so that is when we have seen all these counterparty or just like counterparts uh, of the Ethereum Asian version, uh, getting a lot of popularity here in the Asian community. And then like, because the Asian community this time is more as like a followers, like when it comes to concept creation, that's how the Asian premium was actually created. Uh, so at the highest, 
uh, say for instance, if you want to buy Bitcoin in like local Korean exchanges, and so you have to pay pretty much like 15% higher so than any other US dollar market. Um, so I think in China, we always have seen this Bitcoin premium or just like ETH premium for a little bit. And, and like anywhere between like 3% probably to 5%. So that is like the Asian premium, like because the Asian market is always a little bit delayed when it comes to information propagation. It is always like first the West market uh, led the trend or just like led the price movement and like the Asian market wake up like due to time zone difference. And then so they will have to process like all the new information and all the new narrative and like then they basically follow what's going on. So I think that's the generation of this premium no so no matter it's chinese premium or like kinship premium back in korea so we don't see a lot of like high premium nowadays and then so sometimes so like especially like during like bear market and then so you will also see like a discount so there's no premium but like a discount so there's always this like like a little bit time zone gap or like a little bit delay when it comes to information propagation I think like after the ICO bubble get busted and that's when we enter into the bear market between 2018 to like 2019, uh, that's when I feel necessary to just like to talk about so like what's going on in Asia because Asia is actually a leading driving force partially responsible for the ICO bubble. Like, like I said, because people here uh, probably due to like language barrier and like many other uh, conception barrier as well. And they're always a little bit behind of the global information life. So they're always a little bit behind uh, of the, the entire information frontier, right? So it's much easier to manipulate the narrative here and it's much easier to formal the local retail investor here. And then also there's a few like market structure difference. Uh, first of all, the market here is primarily driven by retail and I would say 80-70% are completely retail and probably even more back in the time, probably 90%, probably 90% of the coin co-investors, like they're all retail. Like even many funds here, they are syndicates. So they're basically not like professional funds and so they're not like professional funds in our understanding. So in our Western professional understanding. So they're more like a syndicate and so like a few whales here. And so they basically try to get together and like organize a brand behind it. And, and but like in reality, so they're more like syndicates. And then also many funds, they're uh, agency, I would say. So they're acting under this agency model where uh, so they will take the allocation, uh, they will have the allocation of like Kyber, and then so they actually resell to all their retail followers, which was quite common during 2017 and like 2018. Um, and I think that for the uh, add-on to the non-transparency nature of like the information delay here, uh, because uh, once you have these uh, layers of agency model and like the actual retail investors like at it, so like at the end of it, and they will have harder time to access the information and also to evaluate like what's actually going on. So like say for instance, when it comes to back in the time, the biggest ICO uh, EOS, right? So EOS back then raised like a handful of billion dollar like total. So during this like one year or like two year ICO, I can remember. And majority of the money are like coming from China. 
So that is a very underestimated like power behind it. Just like the capital power and like the like human capital power as well as like the capital power. Yeah. So like back in the day, so you can see like there's massive EOS local community here. In, so here in so here in mainland China, like even many decide tier three four cities, they have their local EOS representatives, and. Um, I think probably contrary to many people's belief, I personally consider uh, China is very decentralized. Even this time, fighting the COVID-19, it is not just tier one city in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. They have like pretty well established policy in like fighting the virus, but also the very rural areas and then also the tier three, four, five, six cities or just like the suburban areas, like they have their they have their own way of autonomy and they have, so they have their own way to manage their own community, like when it comes to any collective behavior. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand actually is that a lot of power is quite distributed at a regional level. And when you're talking about tier a tier two, three, four city, often these cities are bigger than many European capital cities. Just for context, you know, it's a it's a totally different different scale. So where does the nine forfeit in this? Um, so you know the kind of crypto nine eleven. Yeah, so like the crypto nine eleven here in China, um, like I said, because like, there's a lot of this uh, agency model and a lot of us, so and so that also generates a lot of scammers and. Uh, because uh, many of these uh, agency investment and so they're like not professional and like they have no legal binding power and, and so I simply transfer you whatever like 10 ETH in the hope that like once the so like once the ICO project is live and then so you can basically get me the specific project coins right and, and so like there's a lot of this like, verbal commitment between all these well, WeChat, agents. right? A lot of it was happening on, yeah, on, so, on WeChat. So here is so it's like just like so frictionless. Like if you want to spend your money, right? So if you want to send your money to scammer, it's just a frictionless, right? And then so I can easily which I pay you, and I have no idea like who I actually pay to. And many of these like which account, it is like not like an institution behind it, and then so it can be like a scammer and with some like pretty girls like with the profile picture of like some pretty girls or like probably someone looks like a businessman. And, and so you have no idea to validate their actual identity. So like there's a lot of scammers and a lot of scammy projects and, and many Ponzi schemes. And like also like, um, like when Photon uh, back in the days, so like that's when the Chinese government considering like the whole space is pretty much very, very scammy. Um, and I think like the Chinese governments and they have like one typical like way of like doing things. And, and, and so unlike in the US and it's very hard to pass any new policy or like any like legal bill and there's like a discussion back and forth. And so like people will have a better expectation like when it comes to any like new legal enforcement, right? Like here in China, it's kind of different. Like the government will quickly pass any new legal enforcement and they will have this trial and error period by putting things in production. And so they will give you no time to prepare it. And so sometimes it's just binary result and you have to accept it and you have to quickly adapt to it. So probably they will try the new legal bill or like the new policy for a while, say for instance, like three months or like half a year, and they will actually revert their initial decision. 
So I think it's kind of like two different legal or like legislated system, I would say. And, and so because everything here is relatively um, dictated, right? And and so like the centralized government will try specific policy, and then they will also go like back and forth easily. So I think like that's why a lot of Westerners, they will actually take very seriously for many of these like, government announcements. But many of the, so for <laughs> like for 90% of the time, many of these government announcements will not be valid anymore, like after like six months or like one year. And, and so, so like, I think that's why every now and then you will see, oh, China banned Bitcoin mining, oh, China banned Bitcoin exchanges, or China banned this and that, or like China bans Bitcoin. And, so many of them, this announcement probably coming from local government, like not the actual, or like not the actual legal enforcement agency, or is just like the government try to like test out the water, and then like using this announcement to actually communicate with the industry players, and so that's pretty common. So I think that's also why when it comes to the so like the nine four that is September the fourth, twenty seventeen. Like at the very beginning, like because like many of us, we heard about it. So we heard something might be coming up uh, like one or two weeks before and we didn't take it too seriously. And like we thought, okay, it might be just another like government trying to ban crypto thing, right? Um, and a lot of people didn't prepare, right? And then so like they, so they come, like especially for the exchange operator. But when it comes to the night four, the PBOC went on board, basically joined the policy consortium, and then many other legal enforcement agencies also come on board, like the SEC equivalent of China, like the CFTC, uh, like the like the FinCEN FINRA equivalent of China. So basically, all these like legal enforcement regulatory body, like they all come on board, like as a consortium, like try to enforce this new policy. Like that's when everybody realized, oh shit, this is like this kind can be serious. So like, that's why the night four uh, is such a significant and major event, like major legal event during the history of um, China crypto industry. Like after night four, like we have seen many of the big exchanges shut down, say for instance, BTC China, and then also Yunbi back in the time. So I'm not sure people still remember Yunbi, but like Yunbi is actually Binance before Binance. And it was the biggest Bitcoin, like it was back in the time, the biggest altcoin casino. I still remember when Saya get listed on Yunbi and it went up like 10x in like three days, like things like that. So it was just crazy. Um, like BTC China shut down. Um, and I think OK and Huobi, they have... I would say better like government management, just a like government relationship management. And I think they're able to keep on operating like and have their operation team still in China. And Binance basically went on to this like running around just like a cat and mouse game, right? And so they basically decentralized themselves. And that also makes what Binance is Binance now. And so like the whole 9-11 thing, like the whole night for for China crypto, um, actually also make a lot of um, and it also and it also make a lot of like Chinese projects uh, more resilient to the regulatory uh, legal enforcement. So like to the regulatory legal enforcement, and then many yes, of them right. try to restructure their own legal entity 
like offshore, like to Singapore, to Cayman Island, like to BVI, to even uh, like Luxembourg, etc. And then many of these uh, Chinese crypto entrepreneurs, so they went on to adopt this Binance uh, decentralized working model, right? So have no headquarter anywhere on earth and basically have all this uh, remote working schedule. And I think that, so this actually prepared them for this like COVID-19 hit because I, yeah. Right now, remote working become a norm, right? Everybody is using <laughs> Zoom and and or like webcasts and like whatever. And and so like Twitter right now announced like they allow employee to work from home forever. But but like this is what Chinese crypto entrepreneur has been doing for last like three years. It's quite interesting to think that the the nine four moment was the kind of catalyst for the distribution of the Chinese crypto scene that created this diaspora, firstly, that got distributed around the world. And I've had CZ on the podcast before, and you know, he talks about how Binance is probably one of the most global Chinese businesses, uh, out, technology companies outside of uh, TikTok, in terms of you know the mix of people and, uh, and where they're based. So obviously, if we kind of fast forward now into innovations-driven again, by a mixture of central and kind of regional governments in China around the, the digital kind of centralized digital currency initiative um, and its relationship with a lot of the kind of Web2 uh, leaders in China from Tencent. Uh, what kind of direction do you think that's going in? What impact do you think that will have on the kind of global uh, crypto industry and Internet? So I think you're asking me about the digital yuan, right? Like the DCEP. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like the DCEP thing. So I prefer to call it just a digital fiat or just a digital renminbi uh, because a DCEP stands for digital currency electronic payment. So it's more as a code name within PBOC, within the Central Bank of China. Like PBOC has been preparing for the digital renminbi like since 2014 actually like ever since the first mainstream bitcoin bubble um so the project itself has already generated over a, like i think over a hundred patterns right now and so it's basically like a like a five-year initiative already and they have as far as i know they had like two teams within pvoc like working on a project and one is working on the issuance and basically how to design this new digital version of the monetary base uh, and then like the other team is working on the interaction, like working on the money flow, uh, uh, basically working on how this new uh, digital version of the N0 gonna interact with all the commercial banks. Um, I think the whole team gonna be anywhere from like like 200 to 500 people. So it is not like a huge team. So it's like a long time initiative and yeah. Um, so like, do you have specific question about it or I should just yeah, generally yeah. talk about it? No. So, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things about it is the idea that the ability and speed of rollout. So because of these ties up, you were mentioning earlier, you know, China already has this incredible frictionless kind of digital payment system i think one of the only the only unbanked in china are often westerners visiting right there is nobody there's very few people in in china that you would you would classify as unbanked in any way and so i guess 
there's this ability to very quickly deploy this to a billion people, right? In a way that it'd be very difficult to roll out an equivalent anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Right now, like the current plan is, and they're going to roll out like just like experimentation uh, type of thing, like quickly in about three month time frame. So the first child period, anywhere from August like, to the end of this year. Uh, so they're they're going to try it out in Shenzhen, Shuzhou, Chengdu. So basically a few other capital city here in mainland China. And I think the plan right now is like, so I have seen a few case study, just like talking with the insider of like PBOC and like people working on the projects and also like talking with my Tencent friends. Um, so the plan right now is like consider this as a new cash, right? Because whatever issued by the central bank and is the monetary base. So it's very hard to have a larger scale uh, transaction or like a larger scale liquidity or cover a lot of like different use cases at the very beginning. And so their plan for the first phase is uh, they're going to use this money, like money equivalent. Uh, so they're going to use this money equivalent and like test out this transaction or like payment settlement system to pay out the governor or just like uh, public workers bonuses or just benefits. Uh, so in, so say for instance, in one city or two. So that is the first step. So it will be like a closed loop system, right? So, so they're basically going to pay, uh, say for instance, like a local IRS employees, like salary benefits and like perks, like using this like digital renminbi. And then also they're going to issue this uh, renminbi to like a certain channel. So there's a lot of this uh, monetary aid for SMB here in like, China. So if you're, so if you are like a restaurant owner and then so you can also like apply for like government aid, right? And then, so you will have to download this new payment system and like the government will actually send you money like directly to your wallet using this like digital renminbi. And then you can only spend this digital renminbi in like a certain set scenario. And so I think this is like a very limited capacity testing. Uh, so that's gonna be for this year. And then uh, targeted use case like based on uh, many of these like, new fiscal policy and just like a limited set of like fiscal policy and then aiming this uh, COVID-19 support plan for like SMB and then uh, and then like, also paying salary for some public workers. And then so like that is like the first two confirmed use cases I have seen so far. If we expand the scenario in the future and so probably let's like, talk about the ultimate goal, right? Like the ultimate goal, so the digital renminbi project could actually expand the central bank's influence over both the domestic fiscal and uh, monetary policy and as well as the internet so like as well as the globalization of renminbi so i think it has a very broad implication for like geopolitics as well for the future uh, of who can have the leading power and like who can have the monetary hegemony so like right now it's obviously is like us dollar or like petrol dollar right and uh, i think to understand the pboc's motive and then so we have to first distinguish the digitization of fiat currency and then also the digital fiat currency because the digitization of fiat currency uh is what the WeChat payment and like the Alipay has been doing for the last five years. Uh, right. Like 
and then also Apple Pay, and then also what Facebook has been trying, so like on the Facebook Messenger, but like eventually fail. So like that's why if you look at the origin of Facebook's Libra, right? Facebook hired the CEO uh, of like former PayPal, and like Facebook hired uh, like what's uh, like what's his name, David. Um, um, like what's his name? Like the current leader of the Libra project. Yes, I've actually got uh, 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 as well. Uh, yeah, so like Facebook hired him for like PayPal like five years ago. At the very beginning, like Facebook basically want to copy WeChat, and Zuckerberg even publicly talked about it, saying we have to learn from WeChat and like especially their successful story when it comes to the payment domain, right? Like Facebook first like try to like replicate what the WeChat pay. Uh, within WeChat, but failed, and like that's when they went on to this uh, digital currency initiative, like Libra. So, 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 like the digitization of fiat currency is just like WeChat and like Alipay, and yes. then when it comes to the digital fiat currency, it's a completely different animal. Like the digital fiat currency, I will consider digital fiat currency is as a Trojan horse. It is a Trojan horse of the sovereign money gas into the what we consider as a decentralized meta sovereign cryptocurrency right um so if you have watched the movie matrix like what we consider as web3 and what we consider as this meta sovereign decentralized cryptocurrency and that is neo and then like the digital currency like the digital fiat currency is actually agent smith right even if like they all live within the matrix but like they're completely opposite so like they're basically enemy towards each other right so that's that's really interesting concept so let's just pause on that for a second so um focusing on that and looking at your your portfolio and some of your investments obviously as you said you're, you're very close to the zcash team both zcash itself but also starkware we share an investment in um, brave brave browser so they're both you know privacy oriented technologies how do you see the interplay between these two systems do you think they're distinct and opposed or you know do you think that there's going to be a more kind of complex interplay uh so you mean the interaction of brave and zcash uh, no so if if you um so you know you're talking about this this matrix system and uh you know one is agent smith and one is one is neo if you look at where that the founders that you're backing as an investor um they're kind of more on on the neo side I, I would guess to kind of continue the analogy so so how do you see that fight that battle taking shape do you, do you see it very much as two opposing systems i think when it comes to entrepreneurs so it is not like black or white it is not if you're not Neo, then you're Agent Smith, right? So like each of the entrepreneur, like they have their own characteristic and personality, and then also their belief spectrum. Like if we have this belief on the decentralized system and there's always like a spectrum, and, and so they have their like belief spectrum land on specific point, right? Um, some of them are more like crypto native and then just uh, more towards the Neo side. And then some of them, are more um, like business driven, are more application driven. Because if you want to build any application or like if you want to build any, especially user facing application, and then so you will still need to have this um, like consumer internet entrepreneurial mindset, right? And then so that will lend you more on the centralized side. I think for any good entrepreneur, like you will need to know how to leverage both advantages. And so you will need to understand, okay, when it comes to cryptocurrency and then how I can leverage the best out of it. 
right? So it's different from like the borderless payment and then like the frictionless uh, settlement, things like that. So like probably easier. So when it comes to like the MetaSolven, uh, MetaSolven cryptocurrency, and then probably it's easier to reach like a global audience and things like that. And then so you will also need to know how to design a really good product that have no problem getting user on board. And then so you will also need to know how to tell a good story and how to do like growth hacking. So I don't see that as two opposing system. I see them when it comes to backing a founder or a backing a entrepreneur. Uh, I consider like, like these are two systems that are more like complementary. I think I share my philosophy before, right? And I want to back a entrepreneur. So like, first of all, they have to be like a general. So they have to be like an execution machine, right? So, so they will need to know how to fight the battle. And then second, so they will also need to uh, know how to be a good politician. Uh, because uh, here in the crypto community, there's a lot of storytelling. Uh, so like narrative planning, right? And it is not like being a traditional entrepreneur where as long as you can have a good execution, as long as you can pass down doing your own thing and like being like, so just like being a monster when it comes to shipping products and then so you can win. So here is you need to win the mind share. And then so you basically need to be a, like an Oracle type of role, right? And then so you will need to how to like win the popular votes, right? And, and so I would say probably at like, different phases of the crypto project. And then, so you will need to wear different hats uh, at the very beginning. And so you should be more as a uh, general type of person. And so you want to execute fast. And then, so like at the very beginning, things can be relatively centralized. So uh, I'm very against you to like decentralize everything at the very beginning, because uh, you need something to bootstrap. Like even for Bitcoin at the very beginning, it's very centralized. Uh, just a few people writing the Bitcoin code and there's a lot of bugs. So things can fail because of like one line of like human error. And then so there's a lot of single point of failure and the whole mining ecosystem is also highly decentralized, right? So, but like over time you can decentralize and then be more community driven. So, so like that is my overtake when I'm backing the founder. So I have seen a lot of founders that they're like extremely idealistic and they want to decentralize everything at the very beginning. And then most of them fail, like a hundred percent of them fail actually. Um, and then so, so, so like many founders and they want to, uh, so they have really good execution power. But like the problem of that is like, so they hold all the power in hand. Also, like even after five or three years of the projects. And so they have hard time taking community input, say for instance, something start with Tron. Um, and like many others, right? And, and, and so like people just start to, uh, people just to start like question, like the original intent of the project because it seems like it's just a one man show. So I think any good crypto project has to strike a really good balance in between. Um, like that's my take. Yeah, and I guess that, you know, then really raises the requirement for, for co-founders because it'd be very difficult to find all of that in, in a single founder. And I know to the extreme end of that recently, you tweeted that um, Vitalik of Ethereum's role is a bit more uh, equated to the, to the Fed chairman, right? You know, he's talking about monetary policy, he's managing expectations of markets. Um, and then you go to the other end of the extreme. And I guess maybe that's more true in, a, in the context of a, of a protocol. 
uh, as you start to move up the stack and more towards the application layer, it's much more kind of product focused where you, you probably don't want as much dogma and politics. You kind of want more of an execution on uh, on the market. So uh, you've also got a hardcore fund. I think you set that up uh, a year ago now. And um, I think you're the chief exec. And uh, as I can understand it, it's managed about uh, 300,000 um, USD. I think the biggest was 10, 10 BTC was donated. It's literally a, 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 an address. People can s- send Bitcoin and uh, then you and the team allocate that to people that are doing kind of outstanding value creation in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And as I understand it, it's not a DAO, right? Which would, I guess, in the in the current trend would be the obvious solution. So why, why isn't it a DAO? Why is it structured in the way that it's structured? I personally think uh, DAO is a great concept, but it's overkill. So it's overkill and like it's just difficult to like manage for the time being, and but it's a great concept, and I think eventually we are all going to move into DAO. Maybe just as a point of clarification, actually, sorry, a, a decentralized autonomous organization, so uh, um, a, a kind of community governed by code, basically. Yeah, exactly. DAO is a great sci-fi concept for now, so in my opinion, and and then probably with the help of COVID nineteen and all this uh, remote working pattern, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, eventually we are going to move everything on DAO. Like just all the organization, like the entire human society structure, like gonna be reshaped by DAO. Uh, like that's absolutely the future. But I think for now, one of the key missing piece on DAO is most of this incentive uh, like discussion, just an incentive distribution discussion are still happening offline. Um, so there's no, so there's basically no differences when it comes to the actual current modern society, like where you discuss your um, OKR, et cetera, with your manager. And, and so so when, so because like, the key thing for DAO is like how you're gonna distribute the profits and then how you're gonna distribute your so like how you're gonna allocate the resources with your own economy system, right? So if all this discussion are still happen offline and like there's no way to validate and there's no way to do thorough proof like on all this parameter input. So I personally don't think doubt is feasible. <laughs> and then like also for the like hardcore fund and is a very simple concept, it's just like me and my few uh, big minor friends and and so like like during the last bear cycle and I think it's in the deep winter and that's in second half of like 2018 and we felt necessary to have something independent like to sponsor and support uh, Bitcoin development um, so that's when we just rally around and initially we had like 50 bitcoin and so like it's all donated by local chinese miners and some like good friends of mine that's how we started the hardcore fund and and so the mandate is also very very simple and we want to support and sponsor full-time independent bitcoin developer because like after evaluation and what we consider as the biggest risk towards Bitcoin in the future, it is not centralization of mining, it is not centralization of wallets, it is not centralization of um, so of like hash power or like ASIC. Uh, it's actually the centralization of developer themselves. Uh, like right now, we have roughly like twelve or thirteen full-time Bitcoin developers like all over the world. And if you think about this, this is insane, right? And Bitcoin is a 
over a hundred billion dollar asset, and in the future it might be an over a trillion dollar asset. And if you have less than twenty developers and maintaining the code, this just that scary. And like many of them are affiliated with like Chainco Lab, like which is a very awesome organization, and and I love the team. And then together with Blockstream and MIT and a few other organizations. And then right now under like Jack Dorsey's leadership and Twitter also went on board, and Bitmas also went on board. Uh, Crackon recently also went on board to have their own in-house full-time Bitcoin developer. Uh, but still, they're affiliated with. Um, Like institution, they're affiliated with for-profit institution have their own mandate. So that's when we felt necessary to have a independent, relatively uh, decentralized and and just a pure non-for-profit like way of uh, funding Bitcoin development. And, and so that that is a whole story of like hardcore is a very straightforward thing. And by far, we have sponsors, say for instance, Luke Junior and Ben Woosley, and like Christopher Allen and a few other great developers on Bitcoin development, on security, on just like code audit things like that. Um, and it's one of my side projects. And so, because I've been in this space for so for about six years now, and I felt necessary to give back. And a lot of people make a lot of money. So I just don't see a lot of people actually giving back, like especially for company like Bitmain, right? And um, I personally have a very strong opinion about the company, and I think they should have taken a more leadership role instead of like doing many of these like, adversary action towards the community, like Bitcoin fork and split the community and things like that. So, so it's kind of toxic to me, and and it's kind of sad to see. Like what used to be the thought leader and what used to be like a very firm, like native crypto believer, and then become like what it is right now. And, and so, I think many of these like leading company and leading entities, so in our community, should take on more responsibility, like to so to support Bitcoin and then to make sure and Bitcoin can thrive. And because I think without Bitcoin, we are not going to have our community at all, right? So if the Bitcoin story cannot hold anymore, and like like everything else is just like completely dream. I think that's a I think that's a great rallying call. Um, and you know, I, I I think the hardcore fund is a is a, is a wonderful initiative. I think it definitely the industry needs it, as you say, not just Bitcoin, but everything else is is tied to the success of of Bitcoin. So uh, I, I want to thank you for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you as ever. Uh, I've got some really interesting insights there. I know uh, listeners are going to really enjoy um, and hopefully we'll, we'll get you on again soon. Yeah, sure. Jamie, stay safe and stay house in London. <laughs> yeah. And you, Dovey. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.